This is Real Fiction Radio. I'm your host, Lori Messing-McGarry, and today I'm in conversation with Susan Richards-Shreve, author of 16 novels, a memoir, and 30 books for children. Gradually, I began to trust that you are taken on a trip in your own subconsciousness in writing a novel, and you have to trust that it will go someplace. You're listening to WERA 96.7 in Arlington, Virginia, and streaming on WERA.FM. Coming to you from the studios at Arlington Independent Media, I'm your host, Lori Messing-McGarry. You're listening to Real Fiction, a place for novelists, poets, and journalists. We talk to authors about their new book releases, the people and events that inspired the story. Susan Richards-Shreve is the author of 15 previous novels, a memoir, and 30 books for children. She is the former president and chairman of the Penn Faulkner Foundation. She lives in Washington, D.C., and is a professor of creative writing at George Mason University. Her latest novel, More News Tomorrow, is published by W.W. Norton. It's been described as a compelling portrait of a family drawn together under strange circumstances and in search of hard truths about their own and America's dark past. Joining us in the studio is Susan Richards-Shreve. Welcome to the program. So happy to be here. More News Tomorrow is your 16th novel, if I have that number correctly. Correct. And it's a richly layered story with multiple points of view and two time periods. It's set in Washington, D.C. and remote Wisconsin, where the family ends up taking a canoe trip. And this is not a typical trip down the river. I'd love to know where the idea for this novel came from. Well, the beginning of the novel in my head was looking at a picture of my Danish grandfather, who I never knew, or my grandmother, who owned a boys' camp in northern Wisconsin. Nor had I ever been to Wisconsin, and I haven't been yet. So that Wisconsin was a place of my imagination to begin with. And by the time I was looking at a photograph of him, sort of a bucolic photograph on the lake or river, whatever it was, He had turned into a man who murdered his wife by the time I got downstairs in my imagination. And how that happened, I was always fascinated. Why was I looking at this really kind of beautiful, loving picture of a couple in the early 19th century? Why did that happen? And I have no idea, but that's where the novel began. And then it moved pretty quickly on to a story that came from a letter that I began to write from the character, the boy, Thomas. There are two letters. One is dated from 1941 and a second from 2007. And they really frame the past and the present. How did you, how did you know that you wanted to start the novel going to those two time frames? I wanted to start the novel in 1941, right before Pearl Harbor. Why I knew that, I don't know, because I hadn't thought out the story of the novel. But I knew a lot about that particular time, because later my parents talked about 1941 and about Pearl Harbor and 
things of a kind that that seemed very terrifying and also interesting. In the opening of the book, um, I think it's the first chapter, uh, we go into a Washington, D.C. residence that's referred to as the House of the Incurables. And right away, we're introduced to kind of an eccentric concept of home and family. Is this House of the Incurables a place of your imagination, or did it exist? It's real. And really? it was called the Home for the Incurables. And as a little girl, I used to walk to school and pass it. And it was exactly as it sounds. And there were several in Washington. I didn't know this until after I And that's I what wrote they the were book. called? They and were... they were called the Home for the Incurables and all kinds of incurables, people who had nobody to take care of them and were too ill and couldn't be in hospitals because they were dying, people who were crippled, as it was called at that time, people who, for whatever reason, needed a place to be. And they were, they were free. They were supported. And so I'd walk by this place, which was bleak, dark gray sort of brick, and you could see the shadows of the incurables in the window. They would be maybe in wheelchairs, but they would be going back and forth. It absolutely took over. Um, I had to stop in the way when you're scared. Instead, of you either run by a place or you stop. I had to stop because I had to see the danger ahead. But it, it stuck with me. And now Sidwell Friends School has bought the house. Sidwell Friends bought the house, the original house of the incurable. I think that it's you not the pass. it's not the original because it turned into it was bought by the Washington Home. It turned into a place for people terminally ill or in rehabilitation. Oh, I never would have guessed so, that. It, but it's exactly at the same place. In the story, the grounding character uh, Georgiana, which goes by the name. Georgie. She's the founder of this particular home, and she's welcoming all of the, the people that you just mentioned, including prostitutes, uh, people who have just been released for prison, from prison. And that says so much about the character, Georgiana. How did you, where did you come up with this character? Well, the character, I started with her grandson first because I needed a story. I am a storyteller. That's I, I need a story in order to write the novel. So the first thing that I wrote was about 13 pages in a journal that Thomas was writing. And so I had a sense of the story. Then I thought Thomas couldn't be the main character. He had to have a central role, and his central role is really prescience in terms of our understanding of characters and so forth, the way kids can be prescient by accident. And Georgie had to be the main character. And in thinking about her, she's an orphan. Her parents, her mother was murdered. Her father confessed to the murder. He died in prison not very long afterwards. And um, so this must have been a big deal in her life and the fact that she lost her home. And then she went to live with her quite anti-Semitic, and her father was Jewish, um, grandparents, became a real sense of homelessness that she wanted to repair for herself and for others. So I think that's what Home for Incurables, why it absolutely struck her and she bought it. So Georgie is also an anthropologist, so she is really interested in um, 
in communities and in home. And this is, in a way, a book about home. How do you characterize this novel? Do you characterize it as a family drama, a murder mystery, or both? My biggest problem was I set myself the challenge of having the majority of the action of this book take place on a river. They couldn't move around much except Wisconsin, I mean, except Washington, D.C. And it's, it was a lot to do with so few people in such a completely confined setting. But it, I was very interested in a highly atmospheric novel. I didn't think that I had written a thriller and this has been described as a thriller. I was much more interested in the family drama, which I think is often a thriller. Just family drama in itself (laughs) is a thriller. And somehow the combination of the two began to feel right to me. One of the aspects of the story that stayed with me is the concept of discovery. And we've just talked about Thomas and his adoration um, and connection with his grandmother. Um, There's a line, I want to just stay with Thomas for another minute. It comes a little bit later in the novel. It's in his point of view. He says, how can you believe something will come to be and at the same time, with the same mind and the same heart, understand that it might not come to be at all? I found this a really satisfying passage because Georgie really exists in two worlds. She has her belief side and her reason side. And I mean, she's a cultural anthropologist with a huge level of inquisitiveness. Can you talk about those perspectives as they come through her character? In terms of Georgie, uh, she, is, she is very much about the discovery. And she doesn't really... What she is looking for is vindicating her father. Um, the chances of her being able to do this are very slim. But she believes in the process of, of taking that road and seeing where it leads. And I think it's connected. That's when I stopped making her a physician, which she was in the beginning, um, and made her an anthropologist because it's connected to that search for what was there well, the cultural anthropology element is it works very well in the story because there are references to her professional life. She, she's taken a number of trips to Botswana, for example, and gone out into the Kalahari bush with, with very remote tribes. And when there is a tense moment in the novel in Wisconsin, she's able to calm herself. She's able to she has trained her body to remain calm. Um, Is that something that that you have learned to do as well? I would say no. (laughs) You would say no. Well, I was going to ask you for advice on how to do that. Because you have written a number of novels. You've you've, you've spent a lot of time doing public readings and teaching. So that serenity across the table here is is coming. I was just wondering how you... I have a certain... I do have a certain serenity. And I had four children, and I had them alone for a lot of the time. And that can create a certain amount of daily chaos. But the, the fear factor... I also lived in a hospital for two years. I had polio, and I lived from the ages of 11 to 13 without my parents in Warm Springs Foundation, which is the FDR 
Foundation. That probably made me, because I was relying on myself, it gave me a little of that. Georgie, I think, has it in a sense because what's to lose? She's much more on the track of discovering than she is connected to the sense of fear of danger. She's a remarkably drawn character, and I. Uh, this is a good point to remind everyone. We're speaking with Susan Richards-Shreve. She is the author of More News Tomorrow. What I want to go back to is the idea of creating stories and existing between belief and reason. We, we mentioned earlier that you are a professor at George Mason University, and I think this is kind of a, a balancing act that a lot of writers strive for. How, how do you teach? What is your technique in getting your students to think about the imaginary in the real world? Essentially, my teaching technique, if, if I have one, uh, basically is a student-engaged technique and conversational. I run seminars in a very open way, and they are seminars. In terms of the real and imagined, I think I have a good eye for where a student is, even from the beginning, of the kind of character that they are, because all of our characters generate in one way or another from ourselves, even the ones that we imagine and are nothing like us. But I think that the real and the imagined is is um, a place maybe that I've always lived in between the two, uh, that the imagination is a wonderful escape to a world that you don't live in. And I've never written fantasy, but I've certainly taken fantastical trips with my characters that I write about. So I think with Georgie, I felt that her imagination was her escape. It, it, it was her ability to feel that she could manage the world, which had been somewhat un, unmanageable for her as a little child. And I'm also a believer that when something very shocking happens to you when you were little, that's fundamental. How would you compare this novel with other novels you've written in terms of your personal, um, your personal history and your connection to aspects of the story? This one seems like it is lining up with a lot of things in your past. Is this common in is this a common connection in your other novels? I think that there, yes, I think there's a certain amount of that that I do. I think I do write out of whether I imagine the experience, it's related in some way to my own experience. What I felt about this about midway as a writer, I began to recognize that you don't know what you're writing about, really know what you're writing about when you begin a book or at least I didn't. And so it was important for me to know what I was doing so that I would come to an end and the book would end there. And gradually I began to trust that you are taken on a trip in your own subconsciousness in writing a novel, and you have to trust that it will go someplace. And so I did not know what this book was about, and you didn't know the ending until the ending. And I didn't ending. know the ending. Oh, okay. Well, that's that's really fascinating and because <laughs> it, it was. It, and after I wrote it, I thought um, I had a great sense of relief because it felt right to me. 
And I do have, there is one thing I do feel about fiction, which is is sort of intellectually incorrect, and that is that I hate to leave the whole geography empty of living people. I, I hate to kill off my characters. And so the, the sense of leaving the reader with despair at the end of a book, I try not. I, I don't think I am temperamentally capable of going there. You have been writing for a number of years. What what are some of the biggest changes in the publishing industry that you've noticed? The basic thing that shifted, I remember my husband was a literary agent, so he was a literary agent who lived in New York. Um, he he died three years ago. He had a, a very serious list of, of writers. And if he took on a writer, he expected to have them for their publishing life, and he expected that their publishing life would remain secure. Uh, It might not be that their publisher was going to take every book they wrote, so that therefore we had writers like John Updike and William Styron and many writers, Ursula Le Guin, and many, many, many writers. You knew their names. Everybody knew their names. You knew when they began to publish... Um, they began to accumulate a reputation you could count on. So to me, the impersonality of publishing, which isn't really impersonal, I mean, people are still people, but uh, the real difference is they're looking for the new hot book, and um, the new hot book is going to have money paid for it. And if it doesn't sell, that writer is going to have a very difficult time sustaining a career. What I have noticed is that that has just gotten increasingly worse and uh, in terms, and I use the word worse because when I published my first novel, I thought this is going to be my career. If I were publishing my first novel now, I would not think that, that this is going to be my career because I think we're all in a more tenuous position. And I think the other thing is I have mixed feelings about MFAs. I've taught in one for a very long time, um, but I've mixed feelings about MFAs. Um, and I know when my son was going to one, I was thinking they're going to ruin his. They're going to ruin his sense of the instinctive way to write a book or instinctive writing. But I don't have an MFA, so all that is is kind of a moot point. Most people do that now. But I think that the real thing is there's so many writers out there now, just so many, and there weren't when I started. And I started sort of coincidental with the women's movement. So I didn't realize it at the time, but they were looking for women. And so you had a leg up. Uh, the other thing that is totally changed, and I think this is in a way for the good, I got a publicist with this book I got who worked with Kyle, but I got a publicist because I simply am not sophisticated enough on all of the things that the Internet allows in terms of marketing to do it. And I guess I didn't want to know. So that was very helpful. But it's not free. No, it's not. And I'm hearing from more and more authors that there is an expectation that a portion of the advance that comes from a publishing contract should be 
there's an expectation that it should be used for marketing and publicity. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm, I'm seeing that the publicity agencies are kind of a growth industry in the, pub, in the kind of authorial market, which is an interesting trend. Well, you've talked about your early career, and we have listeners who are writers and working on manuscripts. Did you face rejection earlier in your career? I had written a novel, and I thought, I was 18 years old, I thought, you write a novel, you go to New York, you sell the novel, and that's that seemed to me very simple. I wrote the novel. I had a friend whose father was an agent in New York. He read the novel. He said, this is unpublishable. And He um, said it was unpublishable. Unpublishable. Uh, but he, what he suggested is I go out in the world and get some experience and then write a novel when I was a little older. And it didn't. I, I, I kept his letter because he said a couple of nice things. They were not I would not look at them as nice now, but but it was enough to make me think, okay, I'll write another novel. And then I wrote f- for a while various things. I'm not a short story writer, which is too bad because they're short. <laughs> <laughs> you can get in and get out and That's right. kind of feel a little and, gratification. And have a place to send it to on yes. your own. But then the next novel that I wrote was I was taking a creative writing class, getting my master's at the University of Virginia. And a couple of things were said to me by Peter Taylor, who was my teacher, about telling the truth. And I realized something about the truth, which is looking honestly at the world you're writing about, even if it might undermine your own sense of yourself that you want to put out there. But it clicked. I knew when I started that novel that it was a good novel. I mean, a good novel. It was certainly a lot different. It felt a lot more authentic than anything I'd written before. And I sent it off to an editor who I knew about. I didn't realize I did this, but this is one of those things one always does to oneself, which is fail to see what you're doing. I had no return address. I had my name. I had no return address. Oh, So this particular (laughs) editor just happened. I never heard from the editor, needless to say. But about... And I wasn't surprised not to hear from him because he wasn't going to buy my book. But about 10 months later, he was at a party, and he described the novel. And he said, I'd like to find this crazy lady who sent me this novel and then didn't tell me who she was or where she lived. And this person just happened to know me. That's an amazing story. (laughs) I I do not think that's the sort of story... That happens to everyone. I, I think a lot of writers would find that kind of intriguing, that it's not a path you hear every day. No, it's not. <laughs> it's not. Well, you, you said you don't maybe don't want to dive right back into another novel, but do you have a theme or a story that you're thinking about? Two thoughts. One is a, a woman whose husband has just died is going through her husband's papers, and he sees that he had another wife who committed suicide. That's sort of been in my mind. This comes as a surprise, and he is dead, uh, so she can't ask him. That's been going through my mind. But I was asked this question at one of the readings I did in New York. My editor came to, and there was a moment in which 
my husband, my children's father and I in our, I guess we had children from about one to 10, um, both lost our jobs at the same time. Me on one day and he lost his on the next. So we were unemployed with these children and we had a big house that we were running from the cathedral. And I said, well, let's just fill it up with boarders and live in two rooms and the boarders can live in the other rooms. So I'm thinking those were 10 really interesting years. I said, I'm a wonderful judge of characters, what I told my husband. And as it turned out, I was not. I just wasn't very good at selecting. It sounds like you had a version of your own. So I was going to take the title, The Home for the Incurables, oh. and, ta- and write oh, wow. a memoir, but also a sort of memoir that, that um, takes in the consequences of things you do. Because one of the things at my age you really do see very clearly are consequences that you don't see when you go into them. And then years later, you really see how a path changed and you ended up recognizing that you could have made another decision and that could have led to a better outcome. Well, you've you've had an amazing career and you teach at George Mason University. I have one last question for you. Is there a book that you love to recommend that generally no one has heard of? I think nobody in the United States has, has knows very much about Gerald Murnane, who's an Australian writer, and pl- he's written a book about the plains in Australia. And what is so interesting, he's not a storyteller in, in a real way, but what was so interesting and compelling, he's well known in Australia um, and probably will become better known in time. But his books are super slow. And generally speaking, I don't like super slow books. But this is his most, The Plains is his most well-known book, but not well-known here. And he manages to get in a tiny little space in which nothing happens, he manages to create a deep understanding of character. And I was really interested, I think, in teaching. The hardest thing to teach, and certainly the hardest thing to do for me as a writer, is to imagine a character in depth and to do it through small um, descriptions of gestures and so forth. That's a terrific recommendation. And again, I want to remind everyone, the novel is More News Tomorrow. Our author guest is Susan Richards Shreve. The novel is published by W.W. Norton and Company. Thank you so much for coming to the program today. And thanks to everyone for listening. We're on Wednesdays at noon on WERA 96.7. And you can find us at realfictionradio.com. Again, thank you so much, Susan. Thanks, Lori. This is fun.